77%. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Andrew Work and my guest presenter today is Ada Wong. Good morning, Ada. Good morning, Andrew. Hey, on today's Back Chat, we're looking at the outlook on the local property market. Analysts at some major banks are predicting a fall of between 3 to 10% of property prices in Hong Kong because of high interest rates and a steady supply of local housing coming online. Despite this forecast, real estate agents and property developers are putting on a brave face, even as real estate consulting firms lay off staff. Some even have cause for optimism when Tin Shui Wai Housing Project recently reported close to 90% sales of their given allotment on a single day. And after 9.45, we're going in for day two of Biology Talk with a heavy dose of tech as we find out about a new app, a Shazam for butterfly sightings in Hong Kong. We want to know what you think. Leave us a message on our Facebook page. Email us at backchat at, RTHK, uh, at, backchat at rthk.hk or call us on 233-88. Two six six, and uh, we've got a couple of stars of the uh, real estate world today that are going to join us and tell us what to expect in 2024. First up, Hannah Jung, the head of valuation and advisory services at Colliers. Good morning, Hannah. Good morning. Good to hear from you. We've also got with us today Ryan Ip, who is the vice president and co-head of research at the Our Hong Kong Foundation. Ryan, great to have you on the show. Morning. Good morning, um, Hannah. Maybe uh, we'll let you we'll let you kick off. Uh, take your pick: residential, commercial, industrial, uh, hotels, restaurants, uh, alternative real estate classes. Uh, which one do you want to get into first? <laughs> maybe the audience may be interested about the residential first. I think that's probably a good good guess. Let's uh, hit us hit us with your outlook for residential in twenty twenty four. I think the interest rate remain quite high next year, although we are expecting the Fed will drop the rate um, gradually since March. That's the consensus looking at it. So if the interest rate can come down a little bit, that will help the market activities. However, the price level will continue to drop. So we are expecting minus 5 to minus 10% next year. Um, given government already imposed some of the relaxation measure for the stamp duties. We haven't really seen the, the price level adjusting because of the interest rate. And unless they come down to really low level, it will continue next year. So I think we are expecting the negative growth continuously next year. Right. Um, what's the overall sentiment like, uh, both uh, locals and uh, people were actually putting a lot of hopes on mainland buyers? It seems that... Um, there is a little bit more interest from the mainland buyers, or do you see that at all? Um, we do have a lot of newcomers from mainland um, working in Hong Kong from, I mean, since the second half of this year. So they could be the good target, but I think even people come to Hong Kong to work or leave, they, they will see how market goes on, right? So if next year is a bottom down, Yes, there will be some activities from the, those newcomers, but I think primarily uh, we are relying on domestic buyers because we do have a strong will that people want to buy their own um, house in Hong Kong. Is it time to get rid of the spicy taxes, uh, you know, the, the special stamp duties and the, the, the three that the government brought in? I mean, you know, the expectation was to cool a hot, hot, hot market, but we do not have a hot, hot, hot market now, do we? 
I mean, should, is, is it time <laughs> yes, to get rid of I those think, taxes? Yes, the market is still um, voicing out this. We don't need the Doja stamp duties anymore to make it market more liquid. And I think that that voice will continue because um, cutting by half didn't really see the impact in the market yet. Right up. Uh, the spicy, the spicy uh, stamp duties, should we be getting rid of them now to help out the property market? Uh, I think uh, they should. Uh, this originally, the purpose of the stamp duties is to, you know, like you said, uh, cool the market. Uh, uh, we don't really have a hot market right now. So I think uh, it's time to uh, get rid of the stamp duties. And indeed, I believe uh, there might be chances that uh, the stamp duties might be, uh, you know, completely removed in the uh, in the in the budget speech. Uh, I think the government uh, is also seeing, uh, you know, that trend. Uh, but I think uh, they were doing it a phased approach. Uh, that's why they didn't uh, remove them all uh, in the uh, policy address. Uh, this year, uh, they just um, re- removed half of the, uh, you know, cut down half of the uh, taxes rates. Uh, I, I, I see there might be chances. Uh, for them to remove all the stamp duties in, in the budget speech, uh, especially if if we see uh, in the price continue to be subdued and also uh, transactions numbers uh, continue to uh, both primary and secondary market continue to be in the low levels. I think there are, ch- there are chances that uh, they might actually be um, removed in the in the budget speech. Do you think that's realistic, given that? I mean, the Hong Kong government has been in deficit spending. There, there are some indications that they're looking to get back in the black. Uh, stamp duty is a significant source of revenue. Is it realistic to expect them to, to cut that out to zero in a, in a time when they want to get back in the black? Oh, I mean, I, I'm not, not, uh, not removing all the stamp duties, uh, but then just remove the additional stamp duties that was uh, in place to, you know, to, to cool down the market, uh, the, 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 the double stamp duties and also the buying stamp duties. And... I mean, indeed, uh, when you look at total revenues, uh, you look at both the prices and also the transactions. And right now, the situation is, although you have, you know, very high percentage of stamp duties, but then the transaction number is actually very low. So the total revenue is, is actually still pretty low. So, so uh, uh, another strategy is you can try to reduce the rate, and hopefully you can have more transaction number coming up. That hopefully uh, the total revenue can can you know can. Can, can can be more stable. Right. So uh, with your predictions, do you see the, um, uh, in particular, the residential property market um, uh, not falling as badly as a lot of the experts say uh, if the additional stamp duty is being wiped out? Well, I think uh, next year is going to be better than, than this year, but it's uh, going to still be in a negative uh, arena. Uh, I think there are three things that we have to look at. One is interest rate. Uh, Hannah has already mentioned. Uh, uh, I, I do believe there might be a uh, few drops next year. Probably three cuts uh, from the Fed. Uh, gonna Hong Kong, Hong Kong, Hong Kong, Hong Kong's banks gonna follow. So that that's gonna be better next year. Uh, secondly, is um, demand. Um, hopefully, if we see, we see a little bit of recovery of. Uh, of the mainland economy next year, uh, hopefully we'll have a little bit more mainland buyers coming to Hong Kong uh, to support the market. But then there's there's still one thing that is waiting the market, uh, which is the uh, uh, remaining stocks uh, from the developers. Uh, the remaining stocks uh, from the developers, I think there are more than 20,000 units 
that are in that are unsold uh, in the developer's hand, and with that amount, that is actually a a reason high. And with that amount still in the background, uh, I think that is going to still wait to the uh, prices of the residential market. Are, are the developers fairly cashed up right now? Do they need to dump those flats on the market, or are they are they pretty flush with cash and they can afford to hold on to them and wait uh, until prices do improve? Well, I think they do have a um, precious, especially for the uh, smaller developers. Uh, you know, some of the smaller developers they have uh, quite high gearing ratio, although not as high as those in the mainland. Uh, no. But uh, in, in, in the Hong Kong level, some of the smaller developers gearing ratio is actually uh, pretty high. I think they do have a pressure on it. Even for the larger developers, uh, their gearing ratio is pretty low. Uh, it's pretty stable, but. But then, but then you still have uh, consider the financial cost of holding these units, and we do see that um, uh, for some of the new projects that is being sold uh, uh, in the recent months, uh, for some estimates they're actually selling at uh, below cost level. So, 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 so that indicates that the developers are actually trying to, uh, you know, get rid of the stocks uh, even at, at a, you know, lower than you know ideal prices. Hannah, for um, for these new stock that's coming online, are some going to do better than others? Are some going to get dumped below market value, whereas other ones will be able to hold their value? Is there is there a differentiation in the market in, in terms of the new supply that's coming? I think, um, as Ryan mentioned, developers are willing to sell quickly because that's how they cash flow move around. So when they sell, then they can move on to the next project. So the primary objection uh, objective from them is really um, sell the project quickly so that it lower down all the costs and they can move on their money to the next. Um, yes, I think most of the developers are willing to cut their price. So we have seen the recent launch of new territories. They are coming um, minus 15 to 20%, even including Kalun area. But within Hong Kong Island, um, developers are quite remain firm because those projects are rather smaller scale. So they can uh, test the water and see how um, the market response. So I think, yes, the Hong Kong Island may be less degree of the adjustment, but the Kalun and New Territory developers are willing to cut their price, like 15 to 20%. So what happened is that those first hand price goes down, then the secondary market, like people living in the, the normal residential, not the first launch, their price actually higher than first hand price. So they also need to bring down their price to able to sell their own units. So that goes down with the overall market adjustment together. Right. Is that the main reason for, you know, a recent Tinshui housing project reported close to 90% sales um, on a single yeah. day? Yeah, I think as long as the product is good and people willing to uh, see the good discount, people willing to buy because there's pent-up demand. If we ask anyone in my office, for example, uh, many young families, they want to have their own apartment. That's uh, that's no doubt. So, they, But they are waiting whether this is the right market, if they buy now, whether they can afford the interest. So these, if that equation works, people are willing to take the unit as soon as possible. Right, but in the old days, uh, the northwestern part of the new territories like Tin Shui Wai, that is not like the first priority of a lot of the younger folks. Or has yeah, um, it's, have it's things true. changed? 
<laughs> I think it's a matter of whether the, the price level is meeting the expectation, the infrastructure is good enough, where the living condition is good. And I think what, another thing is government putting a lot of effort on the North Metropolis, so that coming um, possibly another decade later. So I think there will be some shift of population in the future as well. Is, is there a chance for a transfer of generational wealth here? Because if I'm a young person and I'm thinking, okay, uh, prices are going down right now, great time to buy, except for the interest rates are so high. If I can go to my parents and say, listen, now is the time for you to give me the cash so I can buy with as little debt as possible. I can get the deals. You know, don't worry, I'll get some of that cash back to you later. Or is that time, is, is this a time that the, the older generation should be pushing the money to their kids saying, yeah, here, just buy with as much cash as you can, as little debt as possible so you can get a good deal? Uh, because, you know, in a few months, if the interest rates go down, prices start coming back up, it'll be a missed opportunity. I mean, is, is, is that a viable strategy? Um, I think, yes, for some families, if they, their parents has a cash to pass, I think that's a lucky case. Um, it really depends. I think the, generally the direction is, yes, people think there will be opportunity in 2024, so they want to wait for the right pricing and um, grab the chance. And if the interest rate can soft down further, I think that will help those uh, demand. Yeah, Ryan, Ryan, what, are, what other policies are you looking at at the Hong Kong, our, our Hong Kong Foundation uh, that could help to uh, bring some vitality back to this market and maybe even uh, help younger people, uh, first-time homeowners, to get into the market? Well, I think there are a few things. Uh, one is to you know remove the additional stamp duties, as I mentioned. Uh, another one is uh, maybe the government, the government can uh, think about whether they can offer some kind of discounted or you know even interest rate interest-free loans for the uh, for the first-time home buyers because uh, one of the major obstacles for them is actually the uh, the mortgage rates. Uh, the the mortgage, given the uh, you know the relatively high mortgage rates right now, so if you have a re- relatively you know low price and if the government can offer some kind of uh, low interest loans or even interest-free loans for the first-time home buyers, that's going to help. Uh, second thing, uh, uh, third thing is um, is actually more a long-term thing. Uh, whether we can. Uh, revamp our land sale policies uh, from currently a a you know a, 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 a entirely premium policy to a, a policy that uh, well the developers initially pay a lower premium but then uh, over the years they will pay a higher land rent uh, to the government uh, they can actually first of all lower the uh, initial cost of the uh, developers and secondly for the government uh, they can have a more stable incomes. Uh, going forward, because one of the problems uh, uh, for the government right now is uh, uh, their the land sale revenue is, is, is actually very unstable, uh, mm-hmm. and that comes for around 20% of the government's income, and that for that it's very unstable. Uh, this good year, bad year, this time is uh, one year is relatively high, next year is 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 going to be bad. This year is going to be bad, uh, but that that is very not, that is very bad for government's uh, fiscal planning. And if you can uh, adopt the uh, adopt the uh, suggestions that I suggest right now, uh, then you can because a majority of the uh, land sale income is going to be deferred, uh, and and so it's not going to be affected by single year land sale, and that is uh, and for that the government will have a you know more stable uh, uh, income for them as well. It's, it's also better for for the fiscal planning of the government. Right. That, that sounds very well, and that, that is very good fiscal planning. But um, what, what do you think the developers think about uh, your idea? 
about lowering the land premium, you know, at the beginning, lowering the cost for developers. Do well, they see that be, as a positive thing? Yeah, I think it's going to be welcome uh, uh, to them, welcome for that uh, from them as well, uh, because uh, from the from the developers' point of view, uh, first of all, they can have a lower initial cost and given a relatively high interest rate, a lower initial cost going to be, uh, uh, you know, you know, uh, is going to be very attractive for them. And it's also easier for the uh, for the developers to, you know, plan ahead as well, uh, because, uh, you know, you, you, you have, uh, what, what, uh, they, they, have, they have a more stable sort of uh, outflow, uh, so they can, you know, uh, know which year going to be paid, how much the government, uh, so I think it's going to be welcomed by the uh, developers as well. Hmm. Right, and in the next couple of years, I understand that um, you know there there is a there are many many flats uh, in the pipeline. So from different developers, do do you have um, a sort of like a ballpark number? And you know how would this steady supply of um, residential housing affect the market? Uh, we did uh, did our forecast. Uh, our forecast. Uh, our own forecast shows that in the next five years, uh, up until 2027, uh, uh, the average completion of private housing units is going to be uh, 20,000 units per year, which is uh, uh, a relatively high level as compared to previous years. Uh, but then, uh, once we pass on to 2028 and, and, and go on, uh, the next 10 the next uh, five years, a six to ten year horizon, 2028 to 2032. Uh, uh, the completion number is going to go down again to a level of around uh, 14,000 units uh, per year. The reason being uh, the government has uh, switched the target uh, public-private supply ratio from 60-30, uh, from 60-40 uh, from, uh, from to 70-30 uh, a few years ago. And the government has subsequently reduced the land supply for uh, private housing and to which uh, some of them to public housing. And the effect of that reduced land supply on private housing are uh, going to be uh, uh, manifest themselves in terms of the completion number in uh, 2028 uh, go on. So um, um, uh, we're going to have we're going to we're going to have a period of relatively uh, low supply again. Uh, in the medium term. Yeah, it's funny. We always seem to be about ten, the government policy is, is always seems to be about ten years behind where they are. You know, like oh no, two thousand and three, uh, property market's too hot. Cancel all the new housing projects. Oh wait, now we need the new housing. We better start building it right when it comes online. You know, too much again. Um, we do want to. I do have an email here from Ilner who says, uh, despite the reported sales success and the optimism expressed by real estate agents and developers. Many people remain skeptical about the property market outlook. Hong Kong is renowned for being one of the most unaffordable places to buy property in the world, which has created significant challenges for aspiring homeowners and investors. The persistently high prices and limited affordability may dampen the overall sentiment and impact the market dynamics in unforeseen ways. Uh, that's from... Ilner, if I'm pronouncing that properly. Uh, the, the middle part, Hong Kong is renowned for being one of the most unaffordable places to buy property in the world. I feel like that used to be true, but I'm seeing report after report after report come out that say compared to income, 
places like Singapore, Shanghai, Vancouver, Toronto uh, are now at the top of the list, and Hong Kong is maybe slipping slipping back in the pack. Um, Hannah, do you, do you take a comparative look at income to affordability of housing, and do you have a sense of where we fall on that spectrum now? I mean, has has it changed? Um, yeah, I don't have exact number, but I, I believe we are no longer the top, top uh, unaffordable housing price or most expensive residential price anymore. Um, we already gave the crown to Singapore um, uh, this year. But I think one thing, um, one of the government officers mentioned that the, the, the unit size where we are living right now, so in Hong Kong per capita, per person, the, the housing space is around 170 square meter, uh, square foot, sorry. So this is one of the smallest unit um, uh, for the living space for for in, in, in the globe. So I think the thing government try to do is the affordability in terms of pricing, but also they want to improve this living standard. So mm. um, some peer cities, they can reach up to 300 square foot which is a more reasonable scale per person. And that's where government want to improve the public housing space and also limit the, the those developers to not putting too smaller unit like car park size of 260 square foot, uh, which is not really livable. So I think more supply also government from from their angle is targeting to make livable space bigger so that people quality of living can improve i think we would all like that but isn't there a disconnect though when we say oh hong kong's affordability of housing compared to income is at this level but when they measure that they only measure the private housing market and half the city lives in public housing if you Mm-mm. if you took what people paid for public housing and included it in that measurement hong kong's affordability would all of a sudden become very reasonable for the half you know you, do you know what i mean the averages would work out uh very differently if you included in those stats you know the fact that half the city is paying very very little for their public housing yeah, yeah it's true it's true i yeah. mean hong, hong kong gets an artificial boost because it only measures where half the population lives Mm-mm. But I think still uh, we don't have a sufficient public housing to cater the group of people. And also the private housing was quite limited supply. Therefore, there was always a price war. Now um, we do see the market coming down and uh, naturally by the overall economic situation. Mm. But I think supply still played an important role in the long run. Very, very true. Um, we've only got a couple of minutes left, and we have not even touched on commercial or industrial. Of course, industrial is my thing, uh, given my day job with the, the Self Storage Association Asia. Um, but maybe we can hit on commercial because I think that is going to be like, I mean, all over the world, commercial real estate is a bloodbath right now. Um, companies like Blackstone and, and or sorry, not Blackstone, uh, BlackRock are, are deliberately declaring bankruptcy on owned companies so they can just hand over the keys and walk away as a business strategy. I mean, they have the money. What What is commercial going to look like for Hong Kong in 2024? Hannah, give, give me um, a quick hit. Yeah, 2024, uh, we will continue to see the ma- market rent adjustment downwards, but it won't be as significant as what we have seen last two years. So from our company view, we are looking at minus two percent decrease in terms of the rental level for gray a office building only now yeah now we are looking at the the uh, highest vacancy rate over 16.5 percent um this will continue so the thing is uh, previously people 
never experienced more than 5% vacancy level in their life. So they always try to squeeze their rent to bring the tenant. But now I think people, uh, the landlords are accepting, okay, the vacancy of 10% is a sort of norm going forward. So how I can um, manage my rental properly and how I can make my tenants stay in my building longer. So those strategy will come in. Um, why only 2%? Because minus 2% because we will see number of new buildings coming up to the market. Mm. And those are not necessary to lower down, uh, not necessary <clears throat> to compete with the existing building to lower down the rent. So I think on the surface of it, those rent will stay. And we are hoping that more company will come to Hong Kong to open, especially from mainland China. And that view will help um, this magnitude of the minus adjustment. That's what we need. More headquarters coming to Hong Kong, bringing young party animals to get the nightlife going in Hong Kong. Um, thank you very much for closing us out for the first part of the show. We're going to come back with some more real estate talk. Uh, that was Hannah Jung, Head of Valuation and Advisory Services at Colliers. And she was joined on today's show by Ryan Ip. Vice President and Co-Head of Research at our Hong Kong Foundation. Good to have you both on the show. Thank you very much. Quick hit on the weather, mainly cloudy, one or two light rain patches. Maybe carry an umbrella. Maybe you might miss it. Uh, cool in the morning and at night. We like that. Uh, it is currently 17 degrees Celsius and 70% humidity. This is Back Chat with Ada Wong and Andrew Work. It's 9.30 and now the news with Barry O'Rourke. The chief executive says his meeting in Beijing with President Xi Jinping, Premier Li Qiang and several other senior politicians reflects their high regard for Hong Kong. It's the first time in more than 20 years that the president and premier have met together with a Hong Kong chief executive during a duty visit. John Lee will return to Hong Kong tomorrow. State media have reported that more than 100 people were killed in an overnight earthquake in northwest Gansu province. CCTV said scores more were injured after the strong, shallow earthquake struck shortly before midnight. And the United States has announced plans to form an international coalition to protect merchant shipping in the Red Sea from intensifying attacks by Houthi rebels based in Yemen. We'll have more news for you at 10 o'clock. An electrical contractor registered with the Electrical and Mechanical Services Department must be employed to install an electric water heater. All electric water heaters installed at heights of up to 2.25 meters in bathrooms should be protected by residual current devices. For a shower storage type electric water heater, don't install a valve at its water outlet and don't use a shower head with a valve. A new regulatory regime for the travel industry has been in full force from September the 1st, 2022. Travel agent, tourist guide and tour escort are regulated by the Travel Industry Ordinance. If a licensee commits any irregularities, the Travel Industry Authority will act according to the law. A travel agent must hold a valid license to do business. Always patronize a licensed agent to safeguard your interests. Please visit tia.org.hk for more. And we're back on Back Chat. I'm Andrew Work. I'm here today with Ada Wong. Uh, we are talking about uh, real estate in Hong Kong. Uh, just a quick one. I got an email from Mike. Mike says, uh, and I haven't pre-read this, so whole good. He says, I bought my office in the 83 crash, and I bought my house in the 89 crash. This is a user's market. If you're going to stay in Hong Kong, there's no better time to buy as the speculators are all jawboning, which bracket means talking the market up or down. 
If you're leaving Hong Kong, sell now and leave a little money on the table. But I think of where you want to move to. You might, you just might be moving to the next Ukraine or Gaza Strip. I used to think New Zealand would be a great place to move, but friends there can't wait to leave. Governmental reasons. Good luck. And that's Mike's thought of the day. But we are looking for uh, a f- a roughly 15 minutes of thoughts from Vera Yun, who is a lecturer in economics at the Hong Kong University Business School at the University of Hong Kong. Good morning, Vera. Good morning. Great to have you on the show. We are talking real estate. Uh, we mostly covered off residential in the first part of the show. Uh, but what is your you're you're a, you're an economist. What is your big picture take on uh, real estate economics in 2024 in Hong Kong? Uh, I would say uh, it has uh, it will pass through uh, the cyclical bottom because the Fed has just said they would reduce the interest rate three times uh, next year. So we can expect a little bit fall in interest rate, which means uh, if people want to do new mortgages, they would pay a little bit the two interest rate, like little bit uh, less interest rate, and that helps a lot because nowadays, if you do a new mortgage with bank, uh, at the interest that you will pay for the first phase of your mortgage repayment would be even more expensive than your rent. So it it really deters both investors and also users to buy uh, apartments. So that would help a little bit on the cyclical part. Right. What What about the overall mood and um, confidence level of the potential buyers? Yes, there's another issue. I would say um, this year, uh, the year today for has been about 10% if you refer to the CCL index. And but I think the market has kind of touched, you know, what the short-term bottom is by observing um, the price of two recent uh, property sales. The first one is uh, the project in Yaotong that kind of benchmarked the bottom of uh, property development in urban area, so it's about 15,000 uh, per square feet. The other one is the recent one in uh, Tin Shui Wai. That is kind of remote in that area. And they also have almost sold all the flats in one go in, in the first phase, so it's about 11,000 per square feet. So it kind of say that for New flat is it, that price. And if you're second-hand, you need to put a discount on it. But then in the long run, it's more about um, economic development, really, because a property price of a place, uh, other than its supply, it really uh, correlates with the prosperity of that place. So uh, we know that there are about a few thousand uh, first-hand flat that have not been sold, so there are some stock there. Uh, and then they are going to open up that uh, little uh, island that's Kao Yichou. So it's in, and then also the northern metropolis. So we know that there will be more supply in the long run. So uh, the other side is the demand. So the government has been trying very hard to attract talent. They have, you know, give out visas like in a very loose way and they said uh, you know we have already given out like 
uh, more than a hundred thousand this kind of users, and then they would bring their family here, and then you know, so there have already been like uh, you know more than a hundred thousand of these people with the family who has came, and they would have to find a place to live, either buying or renting. So this is the other uh, the demand side factor. But uh, in in the long run, if you look at uh, Development of Hong Kong first is about the population. So we are somewhat like Japan that we have aging population. And then for aging population, what what happened to Japan is there are not enough people who um, who can live in those flats. So there are many empty flats uh, uh, in the long run, and there's not enough demand for this. Uh, the second thing, the more important thing, is the uh, geopolitics. So the tension between China and the U.S. basically affects Hong Kong business a lot because what Hong Kong has been doing and has been doing well is to be intermediaries uh, between China and the world. And we're a small economy. We try to do um, business internationally. And first, if you look at economic growth in Europe and and U.S. is a little bit better. Europe is not that good. So, I mean, it's sluggish growth globally. It's not that uh, optimistic. And then, because the world has treated Hong Kong as the same as China in terms of uh, many things, so the previous privilege that we had, they have been gone. And that includes, uh, you know, technology sanctioning and, and that kind of thing. Mm. So that is... Uh, what is worrying about, you know, in the long run, the structural factors, your political factor, public in the micro, which will impact the demand for um, housing and the real estate property market. Vera, you've just gone from the micro and then zoomed out all the way to the macro. I feel like I just read the uh, the summary of your PhD thesis. Um, so a lot, a lot to cover off in there. I'm going to zoom in on one part of what you said, and it connects to something Ryan Ip said. Uh, in the first part of the show, uh, it, you know, with all this new housing supply coming into the market, developers, uh, he, he said that developers are under pressure to sell in so much as they need the money to go on to their next development. Right. So but the question that I have for you is, OK, if that is the case, assuming that's true, uh, Hong Kong government has not been selling any land lately. They've been putting land tenders out and no, there are no bidders. So are developers holding on to properties they have now and saying, you know what, I'm not going to sell. I'm not going to buy a new property. I'm not going to develop more. I'm just going to hold on to what I have and wait until prices come back up. I mean, is, is that what's happening right now? Are we, do we have lower prices, but you know, are, are transactions in 2024 going to be stymied by developers holding on to their properties that they don't want to sell until prices come back up and also holding back on buying government or bidding on government land sales? Because, I mean, that has bigger implications for the status of government finances as well. Yes. Uh, yeah, they're not bidding much because they, they can't see it going up. And then some of them are holding, but you can see some of them are It depends on the business model. You know, some land developers, they're not listed. They don't really care 
you know, about uh, shareholders. They don't need the cash flow. They just hold on to it. They, you know, they sit on the stock for 20 years. You have seen this developer in Hong Kong before. Even at high price, they don't sell it. Yeah, it's true. Okay, dividends, but- <laughs> shareholders, shareholders, dividends, bad. Yeah. yeah. But some of them, uh, you know, they are listed company. They need to, they need some cash flow. They need to yeah. project, you know, rolling. Then you can see that how some of them have slashed the price in few months back then. And what they're doing is trying to, they have to sell some, and then they're looking for, like, we are, if, even when we are going flat, there would be a cycle. So they're looking for the peak of that cycle to sell so that they can sell a little bit higher. Mm. So they have been, like, like watching and then, you know, trying to shoot that point. You can see how they're doing this. They We know that some... Some projects would be sold, and then we're waiting for the prices, and then and then after a while they they set the price. So so that that is one thing, and and yes, they would look for this movement to sell so that it won't look too ugly, and then you know their boss is not too hmm. unhappy. But then you can see in the new uh, uh, new metropolis, I think they just did something like if you if you don't pay the land premium, the government will take the land. So basically, most have paid it. I mean, that they like planned a long time ago that they have owned some land, and the government planned it to build something on that place. And then this part is private, this part is public, and da da da. And then, okay, we have drawn this, you know, plan. And then, like, if you don't pay land premium, this is going to develop too. But it's you know, in another way. So I think most of them have paid it. Yeah. Right, and I think the the district is is actually very important as well. So I think um, uh, there will be a lot of land sales in the northern metropolis in the next ten years. Whereas um, nowadays, um, you know, land auctions in Tongchong and other places, you know, that might not go down too well, and you know, results are disappointing with no bid or one bid. Um, do Do you think that um, you know the district itself is um, is a key part of it? And uh... we're moving to the north. Yes, they, the government, I think they would move the headquarters to the north in the future. Uh, but then not, not in the short future, but in, in the middle term, I think they would do so because that would be something that helps boost the economy. Like you have a lot of people work there and you need to have business there. And then also the uh, technology hub in, uh, uh, around that, uh, river, whatever place. So the, 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 this is what they want to do. And I think for, uh, I think you're right. So the development projects, uh, they cannot be scattered all around. And then the, the land developers, they just look at what is, you know, what may be profitable and try to do that. But, you know, for, for example, like Kai Tak, I mean, they have been, uh, I don't know what to say, but they have like expected to be a good price when they sell it, but it, it doesn't turn out to be. And then they have bid them for a very high price. So you you really don't know for you know what will happen in the long run. Now, and and what about commercial properties? Now the vacancy uh, level is at its highest. And I understand that work patterns are changing. I, I learned from my young friends uh, who are now in the biggest consulting firms and they're working at home. They say, well, my company does not want me to go to the office and I don't really have a desk. So, so we're talking about the big four. 
And if that goes on, then the grade A um, uh, commercial buildings uh, might be quite empty, you know, in the next two decades. That's true. Um, in Hong Kong, you know, it's already like it work from home is less expensive than in the West. Like for, for my friends who work in California, they say it's like four days a week work from home and they and the company doesn't want them to go back because there's not enough office space. They don't want to rent so much space. So, so that's true. But I think in Hong Kong, only the um, international firms that that would do this. Uh, and then, you know, banks, uh, lawyers, but then other, other local firms, they are not like that now. But they will gradually shift. And, and that's true. So it's kind of permanent shift in the... Um, demand for office space. But then on the other hand, uh, if that's true, then we can observe what happened during the COVID time in other countries. So even for suburb area, uh, uh, suburb area and then more remote areas, their housing price increased more than the urban area because now people find that they don't need to commute uh, every day and then they can afford to live a bit far, but uh, more comfortable, larger space. So we can see that that demand actually goes uh, away from the urban center, but more to the remote area with like no better environment, not that crowded. So huh. if that's happened, then it, it will also happen in Hong Kong. Vera, I don't, I don't know about you. I'm, I'm definitely a downtown kind of guy. I think I think you're kind of a downtown economist. Is that fair to say? You prefer to live in the urban areas? Uh, yes. Uh, but I don't know in the future. I prefer to, to live in downtown. We'll have to we'll have to see. Thank you very much for joining us on the show today. Vera Yun, lecturer in economics at the uh, Hong Kong University Business School, of course, at the University of Hong Kong. Always a, a lively guest and great to have you on the show. Love brightens my day. Thank you very much, uh, Vera Yun. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say. All right, this is my uh, second day on Backchat, and they, they're bringing the uh, they're bringing this, the scientists on again, which I like. Uh, today we've got uh, another one, Dr. Yao Wing Kuang, who is the CEO of the Environmental Associations. Uh, good morning, Dr. Yao. Good morning. Great to have you on. Now I understand that what you have done is created a new app that Hong Kongers can use to identify the Lepidopteras of our city. Is that true? Yes, that's right. Uh, actually, we are on the way to uh, produce an app. So, uh, because if you think of the nowadays, we use uh, the phone as a computer, and then we everything is digitalized. So, even in uh, spotting butterfly and telling the species of the butterflies, we like to use AI, artificial intelligence, to do the job for us. So, uh, so that's why we, we started uh, trying out with one or two species of butterflies. And, uh, but the learning process is quite important. It's like a children going to school. We have to fit in thousands and thousands of photographs for the computer to learn to how to identify uh, what kind of butterfly it is. So uh, we have, it, it was quite successful that we have uh, uh, able to uh, identify uh, several species of butterflies. And uh, we are on the way to applying for a grant so that we can uh, carry out uh, more research and development so that in the future we will have an app that uh, you just take a picture of the butterfly and then it will tell you what species it is 
and uh, tell you what information uh, it, it has and uh, all about where, where about you can find it in Hong Kong and even abroad. How, how, many, uh, how many species of butterfly can the app identify at present? Well, we can identify 10 species. And uh, in Hong Kong, we have total 252 species. And because of uh, climate change, there are new species coming, uh, like in 2021. We have seven new species of butterflies that came from the tropic region, and they decided to stay in Hong Kong. So this is an ongoing process. But I think the first thing is that we develop an, an app or an AI that can identify the butterfly. It's not just about identification. If the AI can do that, we can install that at uh, our butterfly reserve at Feng Yun, and then it can uh, put in different places so that the camera can tell us where the butterflies are, and uh, we can also monitor uh, different kinds of data like weather condition, humidity, etc. So that would help in the future conservation management methods. So this is something uh, quite exciting, and and with the digital. Uh, uh, program moving ahead. So uh, we, we hope that this will help the conservation of uh, not only butterflies, but also all other species of uh, animals in Hong Kong and abroad. Right. Um, Dr. Yao, I understand that your association um, has its base in, in Feng Yun, and um, so you have, um, you know, set up a, um, like an interim way station there. Uh, and a stepping stone so that um, you are really connecting the disconnected uh, different kinds of way stations. Now, I actually know very little about um, conserving butterflies. Can you explain a little bit um, to our listeners? Right. If you think about the city we live in, like an urban environment, we took over spaces of uh, where what used to be nature, uh, you know, with well, a lot of habitats like butterflies and other animals, bees, birds, etc. So what we think is, uh, if you, you should get, we should give back some of the space to the environment and, uh, and the animals and species. So even in a building, in a shopping center, at your garden, at parks, you can build a butterfly garden, like the Fungin Butterfly Research. What we did was we found different kinds of species of a uh, plantation, the uh, butterflies need two kinds of plants. One is for their feeding, <laughs> they have to eat to survive, and the other plant, and the other kind of plant is for them to lay the eggs. The butterflies are quite choosy in picking what kind of plantation they lay the eggs because the caterpillar would feed on the special kind of plant. So what we do is now we are we are going into the, the urban environment. We are helping people like uh, the link or other, uh, even shopping centers, schools, organizations. So we teach them what kind of plants they should put there, so that the butterflies can go and visit them. Then we can go on a camping, what we call the pond line and service system. If we got a lot of thought of ponds in the urban environment with butterfly gardens, then the butterfly can go visit their friends, you know, flying from A to B, B to C, forming a lot of bright lines. So all these lines gather together with form a service. So eventually we will have a butterfly city in Hong Kong. And eventually we can even move to the big Bay Area, China, and even to 
other parts of Asia. So this is uh, what we are doing. And, and in Fengyun, we have about 90% of the species uh, of Hong Kong's butterflies. So uh, that, that's why a lot of people come to visit Fengyun and then they take pictures and then they learn how to, uh, how to plant suitable uh, things for the butterflies. And, uh, and even we go on a marking scheme because if you think of the point line service system, then we have to know where the butterflies are going. Then we actually catch butterflies, mark on their wings, and it is an international approach so that the, uh, the, the person at the other end who caught the butterfly as well, then they can tell where the butterfly has been. And uh, one of the big success we have is we caught a butterfly that flew all the way from Japan to Hong Kong. 2,500 kilometers, so that was a record in, uh, in the Asian region. Dr. Yao, I don't know if you realize this, but in your opening statements, you know, you're, you're talking about helping people to make a little butterfly garden in their backyard, but what you kind of suggested in your opening statements is that you can create the 1984-style Big Brother of all animal species. You said, oh, we've got 10 species, but, you know, we're going to get it up to 250, and then we can do other animal types. Oh, and then we can plug into cameras all around Hong Kong. I mean, given enough computing power, you could develop the app that could identify where every animal is, you know, within the range of a camera, anywhere in Hong Kong at any given time. Is well, that, that would be a long, long way to go. I think the, the, first is the, the first thing we do is we have a hair that can identify butterfly first, and we will concentrate on the butterfly research. You know, you cannot have butterflies everywhere. You know, you have to build a suitable uh, environment for them. Uh, it's not just a butterfly, you can also have bees, birds, etc. So this is all about biodiversity. Sure. So Hong Kong, we have mm. 250 species now, but uh, but we can have more butterfly going everywhere so every, people can enjoy the environment. And this, this is even like students, they can they can learn from uh, butterflies on, on like a biology lesson. Uh, and they can learn about how the habitat and how it interacts with human beings. So, uh, so it, it is. It is. Uh, it, well, I, when I talk about the, the new species, is they actually flew from uh, tropic region. It's something that naturally happened due to climate change. So that would help also help to monitor how climate change is changing the entire environment. It's, uh, so we are, we are talking about biodiversity and butterflies. Yeah, but I mean, if you if you've got yeah, you're already working with artificial intelligence companies that are helping to identify butterflies and separate them by species. Um, presumably, they could also identify motion particular to a butterfly, trigger an AI to take a picture. And I mean, it would be perfectly reasonable to get, for example, you know, people using their smartphones or companies with CCTV set up to say, hey, install the software, let us know where the butterflies are. You know, feed it through to our our larger computer i mean to me from an artificial intelligence perspective that doesn't seem like an insurmountable task not even not even a big one really i mean uh, this could become quite a a comprehensive project starting with butterflies have you thought uh, yeah, that yeah, big? it can be yeah. it's about con how the method of conservation because but well let's say uh, if we if we go further from butterfly we can have other species of animals you know and uh, and they can help monitor and and because we are doing a lot of conservation work now, even in Hong Kong, the government suggests there will be like places like a wetland park and for other conservation. So 
the artificial intelligence can help to manage uh, conservation sites. Uh, the, the first thing is about conservation species, and then we can help management of the, uh, the site about how to enhance it, and and then also about human traffic flow, and then uh, and then we can collect a lot of data where it can help even other places to develop conservation sites. So this is uh, something that we fill up knowledge and we fill up data so that we can help other locations to fill up conservation sites. So so uh, so that will help with the checking and also the biodiversity, uh, as is said in uh, UNESCO. How, how did you get started? I mean, did you did you approach an artificial intelligence company and say, hey, we'd like to partner with you on this project? Or are you using off-the-shelf AI to run pattern recognition from from a database of photos. I mean, how? I mean, if I was wanted to do this for birds, you know, how would I get started? How, how did you get started? Well, what, what happened is uh, we we have this idea for a few years now, and we start talking to people, and then there's an AI company that came forward and said they can do it. So we said, okay, okay, why don't we try with uh, some like ten species and see how does it go, and uh, and then we get to know how. We can do it, and the AI company also learn how to do it. Because with a butterfly, you can, you have to take a lot of pictures and feed into the system so they can help to recognize it. Uh, the pictures, you know, from the top, bottom, left hand side, right hand side, and then you have the male and female butterflies are different, and then there there are also slightly different patterns. Uh, uh, also became different species. So this is a learning process for the company to learn, and then uh, of course they need funding to do it with uh, more 250 species of butterflies. And also, of course, as you said, even other species like birds, bees, uh, spiders, etc., the same thing can be done. So so uh, I think this is something that we open up a new spectrum uh, of how to identify uh, animal species so that we can learn from them and then. And, and can we do the same for birds? Do you think you know people at MIPO um, you know, are also doing the same thing? Yeah, I would think so. Yeah, there, there's, it, the same process is uh, has to be uh, taken. So, uh, so the computer is like a children; they can learn uh, how to look at the bird in different angles, so that they can they can tell and identify what species it is. Well, Doctor Yao. Um this is really, really fascinating, both from a biology standpoint, a technology standpoint. Uh, I mean, in terms of what it means for funding for the sciences, uh, it's a really interesting direction you're taking it in. And I'm excited. It's happening right here in Hong Kong. So thank you very much for coming on the show, Dr. Yao, a Wing Kwong. I wish we had you on for longer. Of course, as the CEO of the Environmental Association, we'll look forward to maybe getting an update on this project later. So this has been Back Chat for today. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, tomorrow we're going to be back on Back Chat with Janice Wong and Brian Wong. It's a double Wong. Of course, we had some super Wong power today with Ada Wong in the studio with me. Thanks for joining me, Ada. Thank you, Andrew. All right. I'd also like to thank today our producer, Raphael Blatt, and our audio engineer, James Lung, making everything sound great. Thank you very much. This has been Back Chat. We'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>